Matt. We are, we're talking today about the Lavender Scare, which I have to admit I had not heard of before you pitched this episode. Um, so let's get into it. What was the Lavender Scare and, and why are you interested in it? Uh, I'm mostly interested in it because it's a largely forgotten piece of LGBTQ history that also nicely dovetails with broader trends in American culture and politics, like immediately post-war. So what the Lavender Scale was, uh, was during the time of the McCarthyite hearings and the second Red Scare and are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Everyone remembers that, like that's a big part of our culture. What's not well known is the tens of thousands of people employed by the federal government who were let go during this time because they were dragged into a room and told, information has come to light that you might be a homosexual. How do you respond? And I'll mostly be drawing from The Lavender Scare by David K. Johnson, which really had access to like all of these internal government files. And like once you read what people at the time were saying about this, like it becomes really stark that this was like a top-down effort to both sort of have like a masculine panic about gender roles in the US government, but also as a way of like undoing the FDR reforms. Okay, now that's, that's that's an interesting point that you're putting on it—a masculine panic. And you know, I, I try to remember to theorize the the revanchist transphobia today and that kind of stuff as this crisis of gender that's uh you know connected to the various crises of today. But what what do you mean by a masculine panic, and why would that be going on in the post-war period? Well, this is the part that's forgotten because I my basic thesis is that we remember the Red Scare because the Red Scare was a fig leaf for the Lavender Scare. Like we could publicly talk about, oh, there might be communist agents, but what we couldn't really talk about was we're worried about sex and we're worried about gender. Uh, that really comes through. And you, uh, the op-eds at the time were like, if more women are hired by the federal government at the and paid the same rate as men, then they won't be, feel pressure to marry and they'll marry later and our birth rates will decline and that's communism. Or another big thing was all of these eggheads, that's what the right-wing right, right wing opinions call them, like all these eggheads at the State Department, all of these new dealers who just want to learn books and they want to set policy and they're not real men because they'll never own a business. They just want to be like glorified secretaries. And this whole process of like government intrusion into your life via like regulation was an emasculating effect. Mm. To the point where there are period jokes from the early 50s where it's like a mom is putting her son to bed and she says, mom, tell me a fairy story. And then she says, well, once upon a time at the State Department. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't and, laugh at that. I'm sorry. No, you can laugh. It's <laughs> funny. Uh, but the other thing is that it was widely known at the time that D.C. was a very comfortable town to be gay in and that government work was considered safe. So you have all these reports of people who were working at the State Department or who were working in uh, security who thought like, yeah, no, this is a good job because everyone's pretty open about what they are. Uh, you don't have to hide the fact that you're living with someone of the same sex because there was this huge housing crisis in DC. So it was just considered normal to have roommates. And after the whole investigation started to go on and the McCarthyism started to go on and this whole like the purge of the perverts, it was called. 
people's heads were spinning because they were just like, but this was normal and this was accepted. Like, why are you suddenly going after us? And I think people miss that context, that there was a period like immediately post-war where America seemed to be opening up and like things were loosening. Uh, there was a whole spat of gay literature being put out for the first time. People were talking openly about it in a way they hadn't before. And it was sort of this feeling of like, okay, with this kind of like baby social democracy, we're also getting some like baby social progressivism. And you saw like this coordinated attack by like conservative Democrats and Republicans who had been out of power for so long. They were just chomping at the bit to get any power they could through any means necessary, that they sort of invented a moral panic, which also justified them devastating the State Department and firing tens of thousands of people. And you know, they said they were firing uh, at a rate of one homosexual a day from the federal government, which was twice the rate that they fired people they thought were like literally communist spies. By now, the crowd had swelled to a mob, and people were picking up and throwing whatever loose objects came to hand. Coins, bottles, cans, bricks from a nearby construction site. Someone even picked up dog shit from the street and threw it in the cops' directions. As the fever mounted, Zuki was overheard nervously asking Mario what the hell the crowd was upset about. The mafia or the police? The police, Mario reassured him. Zuki gave a big grin of relief and decided to vent some stored-up anger of his own. He egged on bystanders in their effort to rip up the damaged fire hydrant, and he persuaded a young kid named Timmy to throw the wire mesh garbage can nearby. Timmy was not much bigger than the can and had just come out the week before, and he gave it his all. The can went sailing into the plate glass window, painted black and reinforced from behind by plywood that stretched across the front of the stone wall. Stunned and frightened by the crowd's unexpected fury, the police, at the order of Deputy Inspector Pine, retreated inside the bar. Pine had been accustomed to two or three cops being able to handle with ease any number of cowering gays, but here the crowd wasn't cowering. It had routed eight cops and made them run for cover. With the cops holed up inside Stonewall, the crowd was now in control of the street, and it bellowed in triumph and pent-up rage. Craig dashed to a nearby phone booth, ever conscious of the need for publicity, for visibility, and realizing that a critical moment had arrived. He called all three daily papers, The Times, The Post, and The News, and alerted him that a major news story was breaking. Then he ran to his apartment a few blocks away to get his camera. Jim Farad also dashed to the phones to call his straight radical left friends and tell them people were fighting the cops. It was just like Newark. He urged them to rush down and lend their support, just as he had done for their causes. Then he went into the nearby Ninth Circle and Julius to try to get the patrons to come out into the street. But none of them would nor did any of his straight radical friends show up. It taught Jim a bitter lesson about how low on the scale of priorities his erstwhile comrades ranked faggot concerns. Gary tried to persuade Sylvia to go home with him to get a change of clothes. Are you nuts, she yelled. I'm not missing a minute of this. It's the revolution. So Gary left to get the clothes for both of them. Blonde Frankie, meanwhile, perhaps taking his cue from Zuki, uprooted a loose parking meter and offered it for use as a battering ram against the stone wall's door. At nearly the same moment, somebody started squirting lighter fluid through the shattered glass window on the bar's facade, 
tossing in matches after it. Inspector Pine later referred to this as throwing Molotov cocktails into the place. Still, the danger was very real, and the police were badly frightened. The shock to self-esteem had been stunning enough. Now came an actual threat to physical safety. Dodging flying glass and missiles, patrolman Gil Wiseman, the one cop in uniform, was hit near the eye with a shard, and blood spurted out. With that, the fear turned abruptly to fury. Three of the cops, led by Pine, ran out the front door, which had crashed in from the battering, and started screaming threats at the crowd, thinking to cow it. But instead, a rain of coins and bottles came down, and a beer can glanced off Deputy Inspector Charles Smythe's head. Pine lunged into the crowd, grabbing somebody around the waist, pulled him back into the doorway, and then dragged him by the hair inside. Ironically, the prisoner was well-known and heterosexual, folk singer Dave Van Ronk. Earlier that night, Van Ronk had been in and out of the Lion's Head, a bar a few doors down from Stonewall that catered to a noisy, macho journalist crowd scornful of the faggots down the block. Once the riot got going, the Lion's Head locked its doors. The management didn't want faggots moaning and bleeding over the paying customers. As soon as Pine got Van Ronk back into the Stonewall, he angrily accused him of throwing dangerous objects, a cue to Patrolman Wiseman to shout that Van Ronk was the one who had cut his eye, and then to start punching the singer hard while several other cops held him down. When Van Ronk looked as if he was going to pass out, the police handcuffed him and Pine snapped, All right, we book him for assault. The cops then found a fire hose, wedged it into a crank in the door, and directed the spray out at the crowd, thinking that would certainly scatter it. But the stream was weak, and the crowd howled derisively, while inside the cops started slipping on the wet floor. A reporter from the Village Voice, Howard Smith, had retreated inside the bar when the police did. He later wrote that by the point in the evening, the sound filtering in didn't suggest dancing faggots anymore. It sounded like a powerful rage bent on vendetta. By now, the Stonewall's front door was hanging wide open. The plywood brace behind the windows was splintered, and it seemed only a matter of minutes before the howling mob would break in and wreak its vengeance. 